Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And dare I say, it's just about the most delicious cock I've ever put in my mouth. And that's saying something. Wait, wait, don't go anywhere. You are in the right place. Believe it or not, that was America's original kitchen sweetheart, Julia Child, talking about chicken, and in particular, Coco Van, the famous French dish. But before we stew over that, I would like to welcome you to Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, the HBO Max original series inspired by the life of Julia Child. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, and each week I'll recap a new episode of Julia and chat with special guests about the making of the show and the cultural impact of our culinary icon. On this episode, I check in with executive producers Erwin Stoff and Erica Lopez to discuss how the Julia creative team mastered the art of Julia Child. How do you go about telling the story of someone so beloved and revered? I'm all ears, leaning in. After Erica and Erwin, I'll talk with Paula Johnson, curator of food history at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Paula was part of the team that acquired Julia Child's Cambridge Kitchen for the museum, where it has been on display since 2002, along with artifacts like George Washington's uniform, the Star-Spangled Banner, and the Wizard of Oz ruby slippers. As we're going to learn, there's so much more to Julia Child than just food. We're taking them on a journey, Paul. We can start at the finish line. So let's start at the starting line. We find Julia trying to decide what dish to make for the pilot of the cooking show she has pitched to local public television station, WGBH. French onion soup? Chocolate souffle? How about Caco Van? Suggests her husband, Paul. They kiss? All this food talk having made them a little frisky. Next, we're at the local A&P supermarket with Julia and Paul, cruising past cans of soup and meats wrapped in plastic. They're not in Paris anymore. Don't tell me you're going to use dried herbs. The whole point is to cook with what is available to most American women. I weep for them. No tears, because soon it's time for happy hour. Cocktail shaker in hand, Julia mixes up a drink for herself and her best friend, the widow Avis DeVoto. Julia takes a martini glass and pours something that looks suspiciously like cosmopolitan. But alas, this is not sex in the city. It would be a few decades before the invention of the Cosmo. Julia asks her gal pal Avis to help with the show. I envision a confederacy of women and estrogen safety net. <laughs> well, I like the sound of that. The drinking continues at dinner when Paul raises a flute of his champagne to toast his wife. She's dejected, having been warned by Alice that her boss, Russ, wants her show to sink like a sad souffle. He probably thinks I'm a middle-aged dilettante that looks for radio. Julia relays Alice's suggestion that she try to win Russ over. But how do you charm a man who does not find you in the least charming? The answer, for Julia, is some pâté de foie gras with a side of flattery. I dare say we got off on the wrong foot. You have a man as intellectually curious as you producing my little show. It's an embarrassment of friction. Oh, thank you. I couldn't agree more. 
On the walk home, Russ passes a bookstore selling copies of the Can Opener Cookbook by one Poppy Cannon, a real book, by the way, and a real author. He arrives in time for dinner, tuna casserole topped with, are those crushed potato chips? Hmm. He presents his wife Marion with a gift, a copy of Julia's book. Fun fact, Russ's wife Marion went on to work for Julia's TV show, and in the 1970s, she opened a restaurant in Nantucket with an all-female kitchen staff. Very ahead of her time, that Marion. That night, poor Julia is melting down faster than the Gruyere in a crook monsieur. How in the world, she wonders, will she cook Coco Van, a four-hour dish, in just 28 minutes? You know what takes less than 28 minutes? Julia exiles her lusty husband to another room and places an SOS call to her editor at the Knopf Publishing House, Judith Jones. Eager to help, Judith cancels a lunch date with one of her authors. Well, not just any author, but John Updike, who at the time was one of America's most celebrated novelists, thanks to his debut book, Rabbit Run. Her boss, the imperious Blanche Knopf, played by the always luminous Judith Light, is not amused. I need to say this out loud so you can really hear it. You are asking to jilt John Updike, who, in your opinion, as I am hearing it, is also in a sort of crisis for a woman who wrote a cookbook with two (laughs) other women trying to get on local television. I think you know my answer. Finally, it's showtime for Julia. Russ's welcome, though, is as warm as a bowl of vichyssoise. You should do your hair and makeup. I've done my hair and makeup. Ooh, the taping of Julia's pilot is, well, a bit of a disaster. The stove is electric, the lights are blazing, the knives are dull. Russ's patience is thin. Julia recovers enough to finish the dish, suggest some wine pairings, and improvise what would become her famous send-off. I hope you've had as much fun as I did. This is Julia Child. Bon appetit. And cut! Perfect catchphrase aside, Julia knows this has not gone well. She apologizes to everyone and departs arm-in-arm with Paul. The show finally airs. Paul, ever the optimist, pops a bottle of Dom Perignon. Julia uses this moment to share that she's entered menopause and asks something that is weighing on her, perhaps even more than the success of her show. You'll still love me. You're my partner in crime. After all these years... Professionally now to boot, hmm? Of course, I'll still love you. And with that, Julia turns on the television. Her life and ours will never be the same. Now, I'd like to welcome my first guests, Julia executive producers Erica Lopez and Erwin Stoff. We're going to talk about how the Julia creative team mastered the art of Julia Child and a few other fun things. Erwin and Erica, welcome to Dishing on Julia. Erwin, let's go with you first. Do you remember when or how you learned about Julia Child and what your first impressions were? I learned about Julia Child right after coming to the States and watching television here. And I saw this funny character cooking on television, which was a very bizarre concept and idea at the time. And that's really what brought Julia Child to my attention. You were young when you came to America. Could you tell us a little bit about how you wound up here? My family and I escaped from Romania and literally landed in Los Angeles 
from Transylvania in a 48-hour period with quite literally the clothes on our backs. We were brought over by my mother's sister. She sponsored us. We escaped and just contacted the American embassy and all of that. We arrived in Los Angeles as these immigrants who didn't speak a word of English. I can't imagine being 14, escaping what you'd escaped, and landing in L.A. Well, sort of just because we're talking about food and all of that, the most amazing sight and impressive sight that I saw was the first supermarket that I went into. I had never seen a supermarket before. Generally, when you went to a store in Romania, the shelves were empty and you kind of bought whatever one of the three cans that happened to still be there if you had the ration stamps for it. So I had literally never seen a supermarket before. When you talked about seeing Julia Child on TV and you couldn't believe someone was cooking on television, your mind really must have been blown as a as a young teenager. Yeah. The other thing that sort of impressed me about it, and this was a little bit later, one of my first impressions about life in America was how incredibly bland and uninteresting food was here. There was a lot of it, but none of it was very interesting. Erica, how about you? Your generation didn't grow up with Julia Child. I remember her as someone almost always being there. You know, I think she sort of felt a little like Santa Claus to me, like she was just this larger than life figure. And I, I, it's hard to remember, I think at that point in time, whether you learned about her as a woman first, as the parody of her that we sort of saw so much on SNL and different things. But I just sort of knew she was famous. And I think over time, I, I started to connect just how iconic she was when I found one of her recipes in a cookbook in middle school and tried to bake her Queen of Sheba cake. And it was delicious. And I think that's when it really clicked for me. What about Julia appealed to your sensibilities as a writer and a producer? When I first heard about this project from Chris and Daniel, the thing that excited me most was that it was really focusing on this one incredible moment of time when she created her show. And I think I was so excited to tell a story about a woman finding her career and passion in her 50s. I just think that that is not a story that gets told very often, let alone in a period piece in the 60s. And it just was an incredible opportunity, I think, to show just how groundbreaking that was, but also I think to give a lot of people hope, to give myself hope. <laughs> you know, I think I think it's we need more stories like that. And I think it was incredibly exciting to be a part of that. Erwin, when I think about you and your body of work, I think of big futuristic projects like The Matrix, not the story of a humble Cambridge housewife circa 1962. I'm curious, what about Julia's life or what she represents appealed to you? To be perfectly honest, initially, I kind of thought, I don't, I don't know, is that interesting? Do I really care? And so on. And then as I thought about it for a couple of days, the notion that began to interest me and what I sort of was stimulated by is in thinking back on how unlikely a feminist icon Julia Child was and what I began to get fascinated with was the idea of her potentially 
not quite understanding the role that she played in the culture and chasing the understanding of that. That's what interested me. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Erica, did you have any rules of storytelling when it came to telling Julia's story? The rules aren't set in stone. I, you know, I think they're the basic elements that you want to be honest and truthful, but that doesn't have to be mean factual. You know, I think we all did a lot of research. It's almost like memorizing lines for a play. You have to memorize them and let them go a little bit. I think we all read the books and we did the research, but then you have to let it go a little bit and just let them be living people. And a lot of us, I think, learned some about Julia through the movie that was made but that movie was covering a lot of territory in two hours. And we got to tell eight episodes covering one year of her life. And there was such an opportunity for detail and complexity in that. And so I think one of the rules we had was to allow Julia to have rough edges. Her joy and her optimism and her humor were a huge part of her. And I think what she really led with, but she also had her own moods and self-doubt and she had her complicated feminism and she wasn't perfect. And I think if we had a rule, it was to allow her to be complex and to be a real woman. We see Julia really struggling in this episode as she faces resistance from some staffers at WGBH and her own insecurities. Today, that might manifest itself as imposter syndrome, but back then she wasn't being an imposter because there was no one to really copy. What were you trying to establish with this episode? I mean, I think what we were trying to show was what it takes to create something entirely new. I've tried to cook Julia's recipes. You cannot cook them in 30 minutes. So how did Julia do that within a TV show and translate that to an audience? Even the idea of prepping food in advance and the timing that that took and how to talk and cook at the same time. I'm not great at talking and cooking at the same time. And I think the joy of Julia is that she was a little messy at at it too. If you look at her early shows, she really had to find the sort of method behind the madness. And and part of that was embracing her mistakes and she became sort of known for them. And there was also a real rhythm and precision to it within those mistakes. And, and she had to create that. So I think the show was really breaking that down and showing how someone might do that. And our imagination of that being not just Julia, but also Paul and her editor, Judith, and the producers at the TV show, Alice Naiman and that it really took a team to create that model. Erwin, did you have a favorite moment or scene in episode two? I think my favorite moment is a relatively short or small scene, which is when she goes to Avis's house to pick her up and Avis is sort of depressed. I guess at that point in the 60s, you would say she was blue. And, you know, is mourning the loss of her husband and the state of her life and so on and so forth. And what I really liked about that scene, and there's a lot of this in the show, 
is how infectious her joie de vivre was. She inadvertently created a second act for other people also. She created a second act for Paul. She created a second act for Avis, etc. That That scene, for some reason, just really affected me. In the process of working on this project, is there something you learned about Julia that surprised you? I think this episode is a good example. She's such a champion of her female friends and the women around her, but she still feels really comfortable in the realm of wooing and servicing men. And I think we see that in this episode with the way she is really good at winning over Russ, that it's second nature to her, that she doesn't really think twice about it being something she needs to do. But I mean, that being said, I think that surprised me about her, but I was really comforted and impressed by the way she changed and evolved over the course of her life. She was open and the change I don't think was always immediate or happened exactly when we would hope it would happen, but she wasn't a closed off person. Erwin, how about you? Anything surprise you? What I'm about to say may be really controversial and Erica may completely blanch here and say, oh, no, how could you say that? The reality and the truth of who somebody really was when you're doing a show about somebody who lived is relatively uninteresting to me. I mean, her name is Julia Child. Sarah Lancashire plays her. She's a totally invented character by our and designed to tell a story and fit a framework that we want to tell. I've had a lot of experience in doing real life stories. And it's never about, oh, getting to the truth of that person. When I do make either a movie or a show about somebody, about a real life person, The reason that I wind up doing it is because there's something about that person or that person's existence with a story that I'm interested in telling. I don't really care that much about the real person. I'm not a documentarian. I leave that to the people that make documentaries. But Erwin, don't people watch a lot of these shows and treat them like they're documentaries, even though they are clearly marked as biopics or fiction. If all you take away from this show is, oh, I got to know Julia Child, I I think that the show is more than that. I think the reason you do shows about real people is to tell a larger story. I don't think you do shows about real people for educational purposes. I think Mm -hmm. there is a poetic license. Again, I'll use the word again. There's poetic license you take to tell a larger story. My favorite sort of biographical movie of all time is Amadeus. There are a lot of Amadeus fans uh, on this cast and crew. You're the second person to bring that up, yes. It's referenced in the writer's room a lot. (laughs) Everyone is making a mental note to watch Amadeus now after they see episode two. Erica, poetic license. How how do you and the folks in the writer's room feel about that? 
There are a lot of really good biographies written about Julia Child and documentaries. So I, I agree with Erwin. That's, like, that's not what we were setting out to do. I think we hope to do both. Honor the real Julia Child, but also create something more about um, the specific moment in history, about the birth of public television, about what television means, about the power that comes when a group of women work together. You know, there are a lot of things we were trying to pull off. And I think Julia was a way into getting to tell a lot of really interesting stories. I think like one that probably people don't know as much about that we get to tell a lot of over the course of the season is about her amazing editor, Judith Jones. I think also not a biography, but Judith Jones was an incredible real life figure who I don't think a lot of people know about. And this show is a way to honor her too, among others. Erwin, I know there is a factual aspect to this series that is very important to you, and that is public television. I'm curious, why do you love this part of the Julia story? There was an attempt in the mid-60s to reckon with the enormous power that television had and to do something that was less empty-headed than the fair that was on those three networks. Julia Child and Fred Rogers were certainly probably two of the two towering figures at that time, without whom I don't know how long it would have taken public television to come into being. But I think that, you know, television has a responsibility to the culture and to the country, et cetera, et cetera, to exercise the enormous power it has for educational purposes, for broadening our view of ourselves and so on and so forth. Erica, what, if any, public television shows did you watch growing up? Well, we were a big PBS household. I watched a ton of public television growing up. I mean, I think I did all of the big kid shows of that time. Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, Reading Rainbow was really big. And then I got very hooked in with my mom to Masterpiece Theater. I was a total Masterpiece Theater lover. It's now Masterpiece Classics and Masterpiece Mystery. Um, and I, they, those were amazing stories. I think that's what made part of what made me want to be a TV writer was watching those sort of big book adaptations that they would do. I do want to give a shout out to Sesame Street Electric Company. And for those of you who remember this at home, 321 Contact? I do remember that. <laughs> I do. I mean, Sesame Street, I've been showing my two-year-old early Sesame Street episodes. I almost like them better than the newer. They hold up so well. Irwin. You talked about food and American food. I want to confirm for the record, you do not cook. I correct? do not cook. <laughs> I do make omelets. You do make omelets like Julia Child? I do, that's, a, that's about it. Okay. Walk me through your omelet making. I will go to the Beverly Hills Cheese Shop uh, starting in the fall through winter and buy truffles, Gruyere cheese, shave them myself, and put them in the omelet. And do you do the whole pan shaking? Do you do like a French, proper French yeah, omelet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Nice. Yes. Since you don't really make anything else, I wanted to ask you, during this episode, Julia invites her producer, Russ, to try to win him over. I wanted to know, Erwin, are you a fan of making deals over meals? I'm not a fan of making deals over meals. I think that that's 
kind of a, I, I think that's kind of a cliche, but what I am a big fan of is getting to know someone over a meal, which makes the deal making on the phone the next day a lot easier. Got it. Erica, deals over meals and don't be swayed by Irwin's answer. Well, it's kind of a funny question. I I know I said earlier that I was an executive producer on the show. I am, but that's like a way of just saying I'm a writer on the show. I'm I'm not really a producer like Irwin and I have never had to make a deal in my life. That's what my agents are for. So, I I like Irwin. I love getting to know people over meals, but I would be First of all, I'd be a terrible deal maker, and I don't think food would make it any better. So hopefully I will never have to make a deal. I also think people tell you who they are in ways over a meal. What do they order? How do, do they indulge themselves? Do they not indulge themselves? Do they relish their food? Do they pay attention to what they order? Are they thoughtful about what they order? So, Erwin, if I order the mozzarella sticks and the blooming onion, the deal's off the next day? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Here's one thing which maybe tells you all you need to know about me. When I pick a restaurant to go to, I know what I'm going to eat there. I don't pick a restaurant just to go to a restaurant. I will pick a restaurant and drive the extra 15 minutes because there's something particular I want there. Erica, how about you? On a scale of Irwin to Julia Child, say, where do you fall? I am getting better at cooking, but my my great love is baking. I am a definite, I, I like rules. I've always liked the science of baking. It appealed to me from a l- young age. I am definitely the sort of improvisation of cooking is not my strong suit. So even if I cook something, I need to follow recipe, which does make me love Julia Child because she sort of has the same philosophy of follow these rules and it will turn out well. But I just, I don't know. I love flour, butter, sugar. It's all those things combined. That's, that's my joy. You have to tell us what you make. I make really good chocolate chip cookies. I know everyone says that, but I definitely think that is, that is one of my strong suits. I have made bread. I've made Julia's baguettes. I, I wrote the episode where they try to figure out how to make a baguette recipe. So oh, I love that my episode. research was making French bread, which is great research to have to do. Judith Jones fans need to stay tuned for that episode because that's a that's a fun one. OK, back to the chocolate chip cookies. Do you refrigerate your cookie dough? I do. Ooh, OK. And that is I, I feel like refrigeration and salt are the key. I should say my recipe comes from the best bakery in Maine, which is called Scratch Bakery. I grew up in Maine and they publish their recipes and their recipe for chocolate chip cookies is the best I've ever had. Did other folks in the writer's room make dishes? Did you all talk about this and turn it into a little competition? We should do that now, I think. But we we were very supportive of each other's cooking. Um, I know a lot of other people. There are some real cooks in our writer's room. I, th- I remember Daniel making a lot of the recipes. Everyone dabbled a little bit. If Julia were coming to dinner, what's the one thing you would make and who's the one person you would bring? And Erwin, I'm going to let you either cook for her or take her out. I would take her for Korean food. I can even tell you the name of the restaurant. Please do. Called Soban in Los Angeles and Koreatown, and I'd bring my wife along to translate. 
I love that. Is your wife a Julia fan? Yeah. So, Erica, how about you? You can bake, you can cook. What would you like to do with Julia? I would also I bring my spouse, I bring my husband because I would let him do the cooking while I just got to relax and have a drink with Julia. That would be my approach to a dinner with Julia. And he would make her, he's Bosnian, so he would make her some traditional Bosnian food and it would be delicious. All right. Well, you two are amazing. I I just, I've loved talking to you and I just love the show that you two have helped bring into the world. And I can't thank you enough for your time today. Well, thank you so much. This has been so fun. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Now let's head to Washington, D.C. for our chat with Paula Johnson, food history curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. As mentioned, Paula was part of the team that acquired Julia's Cambridge Kitchen for the museum, where it's on permanent display. Paula Johnson, so nice to see you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Carrie. Welcome to Dishing on Julia. So let's get right into it. Why did the team at the museum feel Julia's Kitchen was a national treasure worth saving and displaying? I mean, you know this well. The museum houses truly iconic pieces, like Dorothy's ruby slippers, a uniform worn by George Washington, which blows my mind, the Star-Spangled Banner. I mean, I could go on and on. Yes, well, the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History collects many types of objects and many stories that reflect the lived experiences of diverse Americans. And those iconic objects that you just mentioned are often the most widely known and visited. And Julia Child's kitchen has become one of those must-see experiences. And not just once, but over and over again. Fans of Julia are always present in the museum, I I will tell you that. But to answer your question about why, uh, Julia Child is such a key and, and much beloved figure in American culinary and cultural history. We knew that we wanted to collect something from her that would reflect and represent her amazing story and her ongoing impact. This is the kitchen where she tested recipes. This is where she cooked with and for her family and friends. This is where her last three television series were taped in the 1990s. So this kitchen represented her 40 years in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which coincided with her amazing career. Because after all, her career was launched with the publication of Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 1, and that occurred in 1961, which is the very year that she and her husband, Paul, moved into the house. So... At the time when we were collecting the kitchen, this was already 20 years ago in 2001, she was leaving her Cambridge home to move back to her home state of California. And when we arrived for our first visit uh, that August, you know, we hadn't yet determined what those objects might be. And truth be told, it, it wasn't until we had spent some time in the kitchen itself, speaking with Julia around the kitchen table, And hearing her talk about the history of its design, of certain tools and decorative elements, and just how much the layout reflected how she cooked, that was when we asked her to consider donating the entire contents of the room. Can you tell us a few things that are special about this magical kitchen? I know some of these things only because you've told me, and I don't know that viewers of Julia will necessarily catch some of these details. One thing I always say, it's important to realize that this was Julia and Paul's ninth kitchen, that during their years abroad, Julia had to work in many small kitchen spaces, tiny kitchen spaces. So 
when they moved into the house on Irving Street in Cambridge in 1961, they took the time to design just what they wanted because they knew what they wanted by that point and to make it it their own. So that meant everything from the, the cool color scheme, the blues and greens, the kind of 1960s look, uh, the maple butcher block countertops that were raised two inches to suit Julia's height, the pegboard covered walls for hanging pots and pans. Many people know that Paul arranged them first, then outlined their shapes in black or red marker, so there would be no guessing about where a pot belonged. You have to remember that many people were eventually cooking in that kitchen, so it was important that things got put back. But that was part of the original design and is still so special. You know, another element that I love is the central dining table, um, which was a feature Julia really preferred. Um, She liked eating in the kitchen, and she even liked entertaining, uh, having dinner with guests in the kitchen, up to about eight people. And then there are little signs all around the kitchen, uh, Dymo labels and masking tape, you know, warning people not to put onion skins in the garbage disposal or identifying which ceramic crock held the spoonery or the forkery. Those are the kind of little special touches that, again, I think appeal to um, a lot of our, our visitors. It is a humble kitchen at the end of the day. It's a very serious working lab. <laughs> If you start looking at all of the, all of the tools and the arrangements and things, I mean that it's very uh, coherent, very smart, very reflecting her philosophy of of cooking. But you're right that it's it seems a little homey because it has a it, you know it seems old timey. It has a table right in the middle of the space. There's no cooking island. It has these colors that just evoke another time and place. It feels cluttered, you know, to people who think of a gourmet kitchen as one that has these, you know, these areas of uh, clear countertops. But everything was out on the countertops uh, because that's where she she needed them. That's how she used them. I love that you said people find the kitchen to be homey because at the end of the day, it was home. Absolutely. And that's what she said. This is the the beating heart and social center of my home. Paula, what item in the kitchen is most dear to you? I do have a soft spot for the big garland range, the six-burner garland. This was purchased, used from a restaurant here in Washington, D.C. And, you know, this was the range that she never, ever wanted to replace Um, She was cooking on a range that really had been used for 50 years. And to me, this is just so remarkable. I'm also very fond of the table and chairs that were made in Norway. And I'm partial to little surprises in the kitchen, like there's a small image painted on tin of San Pascual, the patron saint of cooks and kitchens, uh, which hangs among the copper pots and the cast iron cookware. So I guess you can see that I love the utilitarian things as well as the whimsy, because that's Julia's kitchen. Paula, let's talk about how the museum came to acquire the kitchen. We we learned, like many people, that Julia was leaving her Cambridge home in August of 2001. She was planning to return to her home state of California. And like good museum food history curators, we <laughs> asked ourselves, well, what's going to happen with her kitchen? And like Julia's fans, we felt we knew a bit about it because we had seen her three television series that were 
uh, taped in that very kitchen, including her last with Jacques Pepin, Julia and Jacques cooking at home. My colleague, Raina Green, picked up the phone, called Julia. Julia answered the phone that day. And Raina asked if we could just come up and speak with her about her plans. And Julia, of course, was most welcoming, most generous, and basically said, you know, come ahead. So Raina, Nancy Edwards, and I got on a plane and soon crossed the threshold into the marvelous space that was Julia's kitchen. And I'll just say here that we felt such excitement (laughs) crossing that threshold and realizing that this space displayed such intent and such purpose and that it indeed reflected Julia's approach to cooking, having tools at hand. Everything was out on the countertops, on pegboard. We also became aware that others, including Julia's wonderful assistant, Stephanie Hirsch, were hoping that the Smithsonian might be interested in the kitchen, which was, you know, just wonderful to know that people were also thinking that way. So after speaking with Julia about our work in food and wine history at the National Museum of American History, we we asked her to consider the donation. She was taken aback a bit, uh, but spoke with her family and ultimately, that same day, decided to trust the museum with her amazing legacy. And, of course, we're very grateful for that. I guess I'll just add here that that she realized our interest amounted to more than a celebrity kind of deal. We saw this as a way to engage our millions of visitors in explorations of culinary and cultural history and to extend her powerful message of learning new skills and cuisines, of caring about food and commensality and enjoying the creative acts of cooking. So, Paula, you mentioned the the cultural and the culinary side of Julia, and the show does focus on both. But we don't often talk about Julia as a cultural icon. It's overshadowed by the culinary side. As a curator, you know, you have known that side of Julia all along. I'd love to know from your perspective, what was Julia's biggest cultural contribution? You know, she had a tremendous influence on food and eating in America at a critical period of time. So I guess I would just say that her message, it was a powerful message delivered in the most engaging way imaginable at a right moment in history when ideas about gender, about roles, about who belonged where, about who could do what were really in everyone's minds. I also have to say I love the late in life pivot, how she just didn't know what she wanted to do with her life, didn't even start cooking until her 30s, which is remarkable. And then the book comes out when she's 49. She becomes a TV star in her 50s, no previous experience. It's just a very inspiring story. It absolutely is. And again, in terms of history, her timing was impeccable. I mean, would she have been able to make a difference 10 years later in, you know, when food television may have been taken another turn? I don't know. Paula, I did not ask you, do you cook? And all these times I've talked to you, I have no idea. Do you cook? Yes, I do. I try. I do try. <laughs> I will confess my husband's a better cook than I am. Okay. Yep. Truth be told. If Julia were coming over for dinner at your kitchen, <laughs> tell us one dish you would definitely make and one guest you would invite to join you both. I have all of her cookbooks, and over the years we have, really have enjoyed uh, you know, trying different dishes. But I'd take a different tack for this you know, scenario. 
I think I would focus on something local, fresh, iconic ingredients, because we know how much she loved tasting local delicacies. I mean, she was always trying things when her, in her travels. I am really fortunate to live near the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, so I would call up my favorite picker of Atlantic blue crabs, Janice Marshall of Smith Island, and I would arrange to purchase her exquisitely picked crab meat. I would then find Janice's recipe for crab cakes or because of Julia's fondness for butter, I might make a St. Mary's imperial crab um, from the classic cookbook, Marilyn's Way. One of those two. And then, of course, I would have to have some sort of coleslaw and pickles and maybe a fresh peach galette or something for dessert. As for who would be there as well. I have to tell you, I would have loved to have met Paul Child. Honestly, I have read so much. I've seen so many photographs. I adore his photography, his artwork, and you know everything I've been able to learn about him. So I would love to have Paul Child at the table too. But you know, I'm hedging my bets here. Um, if I'm choosing someone who is still alive today, I think it would have to be Chef Jose Andres. He is someone, I mean, can you imagine the dialogue? I, I just two? got goosebumps, I have to be honest. I, I mean, it would be tremendous fun to sort of witness their interaction about food, about cooking, but also about the world. I mean, you know, Jose is so involved in uh, World Central Kitchen and what is going on where and doing what he can where. And you know, Julia was also very concerned about what was going on in the world. And so I think that they would have a lot to talk about. And of course, selfishly, I would be there serving them, uh, learning a lot <laughs> along the way. But that's kind of what I'm imagining. That is a conversation <laughs> I would love to overhear. Yeah. Paula, thank you so much. I, I always love talking to you. And I, I just on behalf of everybody, thank you for rescuing that kitchen. I can't even imagine if we didn't have that kitchen today. Well, thank you, Carrie. It's great to speak with you, and uh, I've enjoyed this conversation very much. That's it for this episode of Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, now streaming on HBO Max. Dishing on Julia is produced by Cherry Bomb Media. Thank you to the Cherry Bomb team, including executive producers Catherine Baker and Audrey Payne, Special Projects Editor, Donna Yen, Associate Producer, Jenna Sadu, and Editorial Assistant, Krista White. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. Special thanks to Stephen Toll and the team at CityVox for the audio production. Check back as we dish on the latest episode of Julia and chat with our cast and crew and special industry guests. To Julia. To us. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.